The following presentation may not be suitable for young children. Listener discretion is advised. John McAfee wasn't just another computer hacker, tech mogul, or presidential candidate. He was also a man on the run. Yes, John McAfee, the creator of McAfee Security back in 1987, was now a seriously wanted man. It started with a police investigation in 2012 and snowballed ever since. Now, McAfee had given up his tech aspirations for evading the state. In October of 2020, McAfee was on the move again. This time, McAfee found himself in Spain with his third wife, Janice. The two were trying to make a discreet exit out of Barcelona and into Turkey, a place where he had a ghost hotel set up and could remain below the radar. John wanted to be as low profile as possible, so he chartered a private plane to skip the security check and the attention that came with it. So far, they had made it to this small aircraft in a warehouse, miles away from the commercial flights. After throwing their bags under the plane, Janice boarded. But a bang outside caught John's attention. He felt his breath catch in his lungs as he looked around, frantic. Did someone know he was here? Could that someone be following him? John tried to be rational. No one should be around for miles. Once the couple left, they'd be off the grid forever. John climbed the short stairs aboard, not wasting any more time. Not only was McAfee running from the police in several countries, but he was also dodging a drug cartel that wanted him dead. There was no telling how much longer he'd be safe in Barcelona. Flying to Turkey? The pilot asked when John stepped inside. John nodded. That's right. The pilot nodded before sitting down and switching buttons on the control panel. The board at the front lit up like a Christmas tree, but the beeping noises set John's teeth on edge. He took the open seat across from Janice, facing the front of the plane. As John put his seatbelt on, he felt like he could audibly hear the hands on his watch ticking off the seconds. The pilot started everything up, and the plane groaned to life. As soon as it started up, though, the engine cut off and the control board went dark. John felt his gut lurch. What's the problem? He yelled at the pilot. A heartbeat later, Men stormed in wearing khaki uniforms with guns aimed at John, shouting in broken English and motioning toward the floor. John felt his pulse race and couldn't tell how many there were as he lowered his belly side by side with Janice. Okay, John said, keeping his cool, todo bien. The familiar click of metal cuffs locked around his wrists a second later. Getting arrested in Barcelona wasn't John's first run-in with the law but it could very well be his last. On this episode, killing computer viruses, poisoning dogs, and lots and lots of women. I'm Keith Korneluk, and you're listening to Modem Mischief. You're listening to Modem Mischief. In this series, we explore the darkest reaches of the internet. We'll take you into the minds of the world's most notorious hackers and the lives affected by them. We'll also show you places you won't find on Google and what goes on down there. This is the story of John McAfee. Hey guys, a quick note before we get started. If you're listening to the show on Apple Podcasts, or even if you just have Apple Podcasts, we'd love it if you rated the show five stars and left us a review. It really helps the show. Now look, we get it. Leaving reviews is a pain in the ass. 
which is why we're giving away a $50 gift card to Amazon to one lucky random reviewer. All you have to do is rate the show five stars on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. Then take a screenshot of your review and email it to Keith at modemmischief.com. You'll be entered into a drawing for the gift card. We'll pick one lucky random winner on February 1st, 2022 and notify you by email. So rate the show five stars on Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review there, screenshot it, and email it to Keith at modemmischief.com. The giveaway closes February 1st, 2022. And now, on with the show. On January 19, 1986, the first-ever computer virus called Brain started making its way around the globe. The virus was the work of two brothers in Pakistan who ran a family computer store in their native country. The brothers initially cooked up the virus to teach some local copycat coders a lesson, but it unintentionally spread. Brain worked by infiltrating a computer with a corrupted floppy disk and slowly rendered the PC's memory capabilities useless. It would also corrupt any other floppy disk inserted into the corrupted system and pass the virus when inserted into another drive. The virus did no internal damage, but drastically slowed down computing time and caused timeouts, which made PC connections unusable. Brain was also the first stealth virus to hide its existence, meaning it left no noticeable signs once installed. It didn't take long for the floppy disks to start spreading the virus across PCs in the Middle East and Europe before infected floppy disks made their way to computers in the United States. Only a few months after the virus was released into the world, 41-year-old John McAfee was forced to deal with the virus's unexpected repercussions halfway across the world. One April afternoon in 1986, while working in the computing division at Lockheed in Silicon Valley, McAfee noticed that the PC stopped loading destination pages. It would load for minutes on end before timing out altogether. This unstable connection was terrible for large corporations like Lockheed who relied on speed to operate. John tried to call his supervisors from the basement to alert them immediately, but the line was busy. John waited a few seconds and tried again, but got the busy tone once again. Ah, screw it, I'll walk, John mumbled. As soon as he walked into the office floor, he realized his whole division was buzzing. Everyone working with the PC was lamenting the same issues. Strangely, all the PCs were losing memory space, taking much longer to load, and some were timing out altogether. Another tech on the floor pointed out that the memory capacity declined on every PC, even though no files were added. Something was just eating up the space, rendering it inaccessible. He was getting nowhere with the PCs at work. Impulsive and inquisitive, John left his office and sped over to neighboring Stanford University where he bullied his way onto one of the computers in the tech lab by waving around his Lockheed ID. Once he accessed a few online forums, John discovered that he wasn't the only one experiencing computer problems. After scouring news and bulletins, John realized that all the symptoms the computers at Lockheed were experiencing could be traced back to the brain virus. McAfee wasn't any kind of computer genius. Everything he knew about computers he learned from his time at Roanoke College. Between 1963 and 1967, McAfee developed an affinity for technology along with a habit of drinking whiskey and snorting drugs, sometimes simultaneously. 
The drug habit continued after John graduated college and started his career leading the cutting edge of technological innovation. With NASA, John worked on the Apollo program, the third United States human spaceflight program that successfully prepared and landed the first humans on the moon. John innovated at places like Xerox and General Electric before moving on to a job in St. Louis for the Missouri Pacific Railroad. What started as experimentation and expansion quickly turned into addiction. At every location, John reported that he not only took drugs, but that they were common in the workplace. While working for the railroad, McAfee's drug problem finally caught up to him. His first wife had just left him, and John comforted himself by snorting an entire baggie of drugs while on the job. When colleagues later found him, John was shaking in the corner behind a garbage can while the computer spit out train schedules to high heaven. John never went back to work there again. However, by the time the brain virus arrived, McAfee had been clean for a year and clear-headed enough to formulate a plan. The virus was a setback for Lockheed, but it was an opportunity for McAfee. He could clearly see a solution to the virus problem and wanted to test his hypothesis. John called up an old coding buddy from college, Tim, who was surprised to hear John's voice on the other end of the phone. Not being one for small talk, John immediately made Tim a proposition. Listen, this brain virus that's going around, John said after confirming that Tim had heard of it. I think we can stop it. You want to stop the virus? Tim huffed. He knew John as an alcoholic and a junkie, not as a computer genius or a businessman. John was persistent. It's just code for Christ's sake, John exclaimed. If they wrote the code that destroys the computer system, we could write the code that restores it. Tim skeptically agreed. Six months later, the duo had created software that would identify stealth viruses and write code that would undo the internal damage they caused. McAfee started his company, McAfee Associates, and started selling the program. By the end of the 1980s, McAfee Associates was making $5 million a year. The company continued to climb in 1992, when a new virus, Michelangelo, began threatening public and private PC users everywhere. The Michelangelo virus was discovered in 1991. The virus remained inactive on computers until March 6th, when the virus would come alive and prevent the computer from starting up. Users wouldn't be able to retrieve anything stored on the computer. McAfee stated that as many as 5 million computers worldwide would be affected by Michelangelo. In a panic to protect their devices, nearly every family and hardware store with a computer bought McAfee antivirus protection before the impending March 6th attack in 1992. Only 20,000 computers were ultimately affected. Nevertheless, John rooted himself in the industry as a tech genius, and McAfee Associates became a multi-million dollar business. Just as quickly as McAfee rose to fame and notoriety, he disappeared. In 1992, John sold McAfee Associates and his majority shares of the company for $100 million. McAfee Antivirus Security had become a household name, but its creator wanted no part of the work. The following years should have led McAfee to a quiet life on the beach, retired and reading books. But McAfee wasn't ready to slow down. In the early 2000s, McAfee divorced his second wife, sold all his possessions, and moved to Belize, a tiny island in the Caribbean. There, McAfee lived in a picturesque villa surrounded by a lush jungle and crystal water. 
he soon began to populate his island getaway with all of his favorite things. Dogs, drugs, alcohol, armed bodyguards, and a harem of seven young women. You know, the basics. The group at John's compound had gotten along great until November 21, 2012, when the Belizean police showed up at John's front door. What's this all about? John demanded. He answered the door without a shirt and refused to put one on when the officer suggested it. This is about your neighbor Gregory Fall, the officer said. He was shot to death in his home last night. John gasped with surprise, and the officer continued. Did you hear anything? See anything? John shook his head and shrugged. I was here all night with the girls, and we didn't hear a peep. Isn't that right, girls? John looked over his shoulder at the women donning string bikinis stretched across his expensive leather couches. A serenade of affirmative grunts came from the living room. You and Mr. Fall never argued recently? The officer asked, taking a step toward John. John had fought with his neighbor. In fact, John was almost certain that Greg had poisoned his dogs two nights ago. Greg was always bitching and moaning about the dogs running around their shared beach and the two argued. Greg swore he would kill the dogs, and the next day, John's brood of pups were poisoned dead. But John wasn't telling the police any of that. No, nothing like that. John lied. He hated the police. In 2008, John refused to pay a $2 million donation to the Belizean government, and ever since then, problems started cropping up. First, the police raided his home, and now they wanted to talk to him about a strange death. Maybe it was the paranoia from all the bath salts, but John couldn't help but feel as though he had a target freshly painted on his back. It's time you left, John said, and if you want to come back, bring a warrant. I know my rights, damn it. Without waiting for the officers to speak, John stepped inside and slammed the door. He tried to play it cool, but could feel the worried eyes of all the girls on him. Nothing to worry about, John said, trying to ease the tension the police had created. Nev, he barked. Grab me some cocaine, love. Nev did as she was told, and John tried to shake the visit from his mind. The police, he told himself, had nothing on him. Even if he was responsible for the crime, which he wasn't, there wasn't anything the police could do. John tried to let the incident go, but he still had a feeling lingering in his gut. The next day, John sent the girls out of the house, packed up everything he could, and fled to Guatemala. The Belizean police, however, were hot on his trail. Just as John made his way into Guatemala, the Belizean police searched John's home. John was nowhere to be found, and it appeared as though his home had been cleaned out. The police in Belize put a warrant out for his arrest, naming McAfee as a person of interest in the death of Gregory Fall. Once arriving in Guatemala, John didn't know what lengths the Belizean government would go to to find John and pin Fowl's death on him. Even as John tried to remain anonymous, he worried that he'd be recognized. John knew something was wrong when the uniformed officers in Guatemala started to appear on every street corner and whispered into their radios when he passed them by. John's skin was crawling, and he knew that he needed to get off the Guatemalan streets and fast. Then, an officer caught his eye. Sir, can you please stop for a moment? The officer instructed more than asked. John knew better than to trust the police. Instead of stopping and talking to the officer, John took one step and clutched his chest. He held his breath and felt all the blood rushing to his face as he stumbled down onto his knees. 
help me, he choked, spit flying from his mouth and tears leaking from his bloodshot eyes. The officer's face went pale and he grabbed the walkie-talkie on his shoulder. We need a medic. A civilian is having a heart attack. John felt his vision getting black and spotty from the lack of air. No longer able to hold himself up, he collapsed onto the ground. All the sounds seemed like John was hearing them from underwater, and he could feel someone pushing up against his chest and a faint strobe of flashing lights. When John came to again, he found himself surrounded by Americans in a United States hospital. The Guatemalan police had taken McAfee to a local hospital and diagnosed him with a heart attack. The hospital sent John back home to have a battery of heart testing done, and John was anxious to leave the case in Belize in his rear view. The police case and John's dramatic exit from Guatemala kicked up a flurry of press interest in the retired tech mogul and his life off the grid. Many media outlets speculated that John used his health scare to evade the police in Belize, and the public refused to drop the case. Relishing his second coming of fame, John took to talk with the fans. In a Twitter post, John addressed rumors that he faked his heart attack to get out of Guatemala. Finally putting to bed any speculation, he had absolutely faked it. The Twitter post read, Next question. Did I really fake a heart attack while in Guatemala? Answer, yes. Why? Answer, I was being deported back to Belize at noon. My lawyers needed until 2 to file a stay of deportation. I told him, don't worry, get the stay. I got the rest. As bold as he was online, John lived his life in the shadows. To keep himself away from prying eyes, he purchased a compound in Colorado that he turned into his private safe house. The only people allowed onto the compound were any number of John's dealers. He couldn't go without the drugs and guns, after all, and the prostitutes that he regularly hired. There was one sex worker that John had liked a woman named Janice. John met Janice outside of a hotel room in Miami in December of 2012, after his run-in with the Guatemalan government. Sex being the furthest thing from his mind, John solicited Janice, but not for any hanky-panky. He paid her $2,000 to spend the night spooning him. <coughs> now, guys, at Moda Mischief, we don't kink shame. But too large seems like a hell of a lot for just cuddling, right? Shortly after meeting Janice, the couple was smitten. She was older than the women John had housed back in Belize, but she was more confident and comfortable in her skin than any of the others. She didn't judge him or ask him too many questions, and she simply talked to him. It didn't happen all at once, but slowly, something about Janice seemed to stick with John. He liked having her around, and he knew that there weren't many people he could trust as much as he trusted her. A month after meeting, John proposed to Janice, who readily agreed to be his wife. The two had a quick engagement and married only a few months later. Janice was John's third wife, and he was ready to make the title stick. Even though John finally felt like he had found love in his life again, he started to worry that someone was spying on him. It started near the end of 2013 when John discovered the door to his gun room open one afternoon. It was strange, but John shrugged it off. Then, John noticed that his small locked safe wasn't in the place where he had left it. It usually sat under his side of the bed with all the dials turned to the number one. One evening, he decided to check it. 
When he did, the safe wasn't flush against the wall, and the numbers were all left on random digits. Immediately, John felt the hair on his arm stand up. Not only had someone been in his house, but they had also been searching for his gun. What could this mean? Was someone watching him, making him think he was going crazy? Whatever the intruder was trying to do, it was working. By July of 2014, John could feel his paranoia rising, and his mental health only seemed to get more concerning the more he distanced himself from the world. As time wore on, John's health began to decline. He was having stomach aches, throwing up, and started dropping weight. The apparent explanation for John's symptoms could have been stress-related. He had, after all, been worrying himself sick since he'd returned to the United States, always making sure he wasn't being followed or tracked. But as his symptoms got worse, he decided to consult a doctor that he trusted, Dr. Mark. Dr. Mark reluctantly made a house call to John's Colorado home and gave him a battery of tests. He performed external physical tests that seemed inconclusive, along with internal tests on John's blood work. Dr. Mark didn't have any questions, but promised to call John soon with any results. John was forced to sit and wait for the doctor to call him while on a diet of brothy soups. Now, nearly bedridden, John relied on his wife Janice to help him around the house and bring him all his meals. A week later, Dr. Mark phoned John with his test results. John wasn't falling ill with cancer or high blood pressure, but with poisoning. The doctor found arsenic in John's blood, which meant that someone was trying to kill him. In a furious rage, John went to his chef with steam coming out of his ears. Did you do this? He hacked, spit flying from his mouth. The chef put his hands up, quivering in protest. I swear, he yelled, it wasn't me. Seeing red, John pulled a knife from the butcher block and held the sharpened blade up to the chef's throat. His eyes were black and rabid. I'll ask you one last time, who is poisoning me? The chef had tears welling in his eyes as John moved the blade closer to his throat. Stop, Janice cried. She was standing behind John in the entryway into the kitchen. Her face was dark and her voice sad. John looked back at Janice, confused. He tried to kill me, or he knows he's trying. It was me, Janice said. John could hear that she was sniffling. The anger instantly faded from his body, and he dropped the blade from the chef's throat. John's hand was shaking, and the chef ran from the room in tears. Janice walked over to him, but John moved away. His head was spinning, and he didn't understand. She was the one trying to kill him? His wife? I, I don't understand, John stuttered. Please, sit down, Janice asked through tears. Let me explain. Just start fucking explaining, John yelled. Janice did explain. She went all the way back to the beginning, to the day when she and John met in 2012. Janice told him that a drug cartel hired her pimp to get John's tech fortune. Her pimp tasked her with getting John to marry Janice to kill him for the inheritance. Everything started making sense to John. The timing of their relationship, the rapid pace, and the strange signs that someone had been tampering around the house. He wanted to be furious. But as he looked at Janice, slumped over the kitchen table in tears, his heart softened. You don't have to believe me, Janice sobbed. I didn't have a choice. They were going to kill my son if I didn't listen. John watched her sob, and he felt his heart break. He had trusted Janice with his life, and she had tried to end his. But 
he knew it wasn't Janice's fault. It wasn't like she decided to kill him all on her own. Now John was faced with a choice. He could dump Janice and force her to go back to her life as a struggling sex worker, or he could forgive her, John said, patting her hand. It's not safe here. Pack a bag and we'll leave tonight. John loved and trusted Janice. He knew that she would never hurt him unless she was being forced. But one thing now was obvious. Someone wanted John dead, and his suspicions had been entirely valid all along. For well over a decade, John was flush with cash. Most of his money had been allocated to drugs, guns, armed bodyguards, sex workers, and modifying his properties, so they were more like military bunkers. Between the sale of his company and his stock shortly after that, John had plenty of money to live a lavish lifestyle for the rest of his life. John's old habits, however, reared their ugly head. He was like a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde of the technology world. Without drugs, John was curious, intelligent, and innovative. When he was high or drunk, on the other hand, he was explosive, erratic, and paranoid. From the time John gave up his company in 2016, he founded an instant messaging system, a yoga retreat, and an aero trekking experience, also known as engine-powered hang gliding. He also bought several multi-million dollar properties in Colorado, Hawaii, and Tennessee. With the drugs, guns, and extravagant lifestyle on social media John upheld, the public assumed that John was merely living off his old tech fortune and some good investments. But those close to the tech mogul knew that John was nearing flat broke. The fortune that John asserted everyone was after was nearly depleted. Instead of looking to his old company to gain employment in his time of need, he started posting YouTube videos speaking out against McAfee Associates. In 2013, John uploaded a YouTube video titled, How to Uninstall McAfee Antivirus from Your Computer a statement that will tell everyone exactly how the tech mogul feels being associated with the McAfee company. The video begins with McAfee in a silk robe, who begins reading the worst reviews of his antivirus software and concludes by reading the Urban Dictionary definition which states that the software is, quote, a barely passable virus scanning program that updates at the worst possible times, tends to render your computer completely useless whenever it starts an update, which it doesn't ask to start and you can't cancel or pause. The software millionaire, clad in a silk dressing gown, reads, McAfee updates at horrible times, almost like the creators want you to die. In the video, McAfee, who ends up being naked, is surrounded by scantily clad women snorting white powder from boxes with handwritten Special K labels. Although I have nothing to do with this company for over 15 years, I still get volumes of mail asking, how do I uninstall this software? McAfee says in a short clip, I have no idea, McAfee admits, and then he lights a cigarette with a $100 bill. Even though McAfee should have been desperately groveling for help on the doorsteps of his affluent peers, he was known for coming up with unique solutions to pad his pockets with extra cash. In 2016, McAfee sold the rights to his life story to be turned into a documentary for a small payout. The same year, he wanted to start writing a book, but didn't have the capital to pay a ghostwriter on the project. Instead, the writer published the story himself and kept most of the royalties as payment, with John getting a meager percentage. Hustling ghostwriters and being filmed was fine for now, 
but it wouldn't help John get back in the saddle and replenish his rapidly dwindling supply of money. No money meant no drugs, and John was determined to find a solution. By October of 2016, John began promoting cryptocurrency to his Twitter and charged new brands more than $100,000 per tweet to publicize initial currency offerings. John's new monetary scheme quickly caught the attention of the Securities and Exchange Commission, who began to investigate him for tax evasion and hiding assets. The investigation didn't stop McAfee from charging ahead with his life plans. In fact, the investigation only fueled McAfee's conspiratory mind and desire to get involved in politics. Everyone was out to get McAfee, whose paranoia was legendary. On Twitter, McAfee claimed that a powerful drug cartel controlled the Belizean government, and everyone involved wanted him dead for refusing to pay the cartel $2 million extortion money. McAfee asserted that the team working on his documentary was out to screw him by having participants sign false documents. The U.S. government was out to get him because he refused to pay his federal taxes and allegedly held classified government data. McAfee never provided any proof of evidence on his claims, but they constantly permeated his thoughts. The injustice McAfee faced in the political system launched his interest in politics, and in November of 2016, McAfee announced that he would be running for president while on the run from several government entities. When he failed to get the Libertarian nomination, John retreated to the shadows to lick his wounds. As much as he loved the digital spotlight, he preferred solitary life. By January 2018, the U.S. government had been keeping their eyes on McAfee in an attempt to track his movements and, more importantly, the movement of all his assets. While claiming that he had none, the tech mogul continued to jet-set around the world and pose with thousands of dollars worth of guns, drugs, and boats for the internet. The federal government knew that McAfee was tiptoeing on the edge of breaking the law if he wasn't actively breaking it already. They just needed the proper evidence to put him behind bars before anyone else close to the retired tech star ended up dead. The U.S. authorities probed McAfee's finances in 2018. McAfee lived at a ghost hotel, an unofficial lodging arranged by one of his hitmen turned bodyguards. While in hiding, McAfee was also alleged to be running a secret Bitcoin farm on a Catalan coast. McAfee knew the U.S. government was closing in on him, and in response to the investigation into his affairs, the tech mogul tweeted, I've collected files on corruption in governments. For the first time, I'm naming names and specifics. I'll begin with a corrupt CIA agent and two Bahamian officials. Coming today, if I'm arrested or disappear, 31 plus terabytes of incriminating data will be released to the press. No other posts followed the threat. Two years later, in June of 2020, the United States government finally filed formal criminal charges against John McAfee. The IRS alleged that McAfee failed to report millions of dollars worth of payments from promoting cryptocurrencies and speaking engagements. John wasn't surprised by the charges, but he was ready to get the hell out of the spotlight for good this time. The next day, John and Janice set sail on his boat named the Great Mystery and began to head toward the Caribbean. The plan was to drift between islands, spending most of his time out on the water. With the official criminal charges issued by the United States, John now had proof that the U.S. government was targeting him. There were plenty of other millionaires who didn't pay taxes. 
Why were they obsessed with finding and catching him? He wondered if the government was in cahoots with a drug cartel that wanted John dead. It seemed crazy, but there was no conspiracy theory too far-fetched for John's anxious mind to believe. With John's mind consumed with anxious thoughts, he failed to notice that the boat had officially crossed over into the Dominican Republic's waters and they were now waiting for him. The police and the DR had gotten a tip that a big shipment of guns was headed their way. Whether McAfee was their intended target or not, the boat was surrounded as soon as the Great Mystery crossed over into Dominican waters. The police found plenty of guns on board and the group on board was arrested. The situation seemed like bad luck, but John knew it was really an act of warfare. Deep in his gut, John knew that the United States government was responsible for his arrest. He also knew that more attacks would be coming. Getting arrested in the Dominican was only the start, and McAfee insisted the US was sending him a message. We're coming for you. John and Janice spent the night in jail before being released the following day. Any country that maintained positive relations with the U.S. government had explicit instructions to hand over McAfee if and when he surfaced. The couple made their way out of the DR and started moving clandestinely around Europe. With federal agents threatening to smoke John out at every turn, it quickly became impossible to sneak in and out of European countries. The plan to stay on the run wouldn't work for long. A short week after McAfee's release from the Dominican jail, McAfee was tracked and finally arrested in October 2020 while flying out of the Barcelona airport. Spain, John knew, had a good relationship with the United States, and he figured they would be eager to hand McAfee over. But maybe, just maybe, John could find a way out of this mess. If he could come up with a little bit more money, he could bribe the Spanish guard with some hush money and make a run for it. The outcome for McAfee, however, was looking bleak. If his bribery plan failed, McAfee would only have two things left to do, appeal his case and pray. John sat in his Spanish prison cell for nine months while waiting for his lawyer, the Spanish police, and the United States government to dictate his fate. McAfee felt powerless and frustrated. Each day that passed was another day that McAfee felt the walls closing in on him and more eyes inside the prison seemed to look at him with dollar signs in their eyes. Any one of them could be a hitman, ready to end John's life. To add to McAfee's paranoia, every US agent McAfee spoke with, whether in his cell or by phone, told him that his death was imminent. McAfee took to his personal Twitter account to let the public know that the US government was setting him up and that if he was found dead, it was by someone else's hand. McAfee was so sure that someone was out to get him that he took every precaution he could. He took to Twitter saying things like, If I suicide myself, I didn't. I was whacked. Check my right arm. Included with the tweet was a photo of his bicep, sporting fresh ink that read, dollar sign whacked, a reference to the mafia-style assassination he was expecting. McAfee sounded like a rambling lunatic looking for a last-minute escape, and he was. There was nothing that John wouldn't do to take his freedom back and get himself out of the cramped cell he was condemned to. Meanwhile, deliberations over John's future between Spain and the United States lasted nine months. 
In June of 2021, a Spanish court decided that McAfee would be extradited to the U.S. to face his federal crimes and stand civil trial for the wrongful death of his Belizean neighbor and American expatriate, Gregory Fowl. The news shocked McAfee, who was now almost 75 years old. The U.S. penalty for his crimes would be at least 30 years, meaning that McAfee would be spending the rest of his life behind bars. McAfee appealed the decision in an attempt to have his fate overturned. On June 20th, Janice posted a cryptic tweet about how much she loved her husband and was worried about his impending death. John continued to tweet that he would meet a similar end as the notorious child sex trafficker Jeffrey Epstein. He and Janice knew that it was only a matter of time before someone, somewhere, got to McAfee. His time was running out. Days ticked by, and just when McAfee thought that his torment would never end, he received an update from his lawyer. John McAfee was not spared. On June 23, 2021, the Spanish government released a statement that they would be handing McAfee over to face the 10-count U.S. indictment waiting for him at home. McAfee, who had exhausted all of his appeals, resigned. The decision to hand him over was final. The next morning, a group of 10 U.S. agents went to retrieve McAfee from his Spanish cell. When they unlocked the heavy metal door and flung it open, what they saw made the agents stare in shock. McAfee was hanging from the dangling light of his cell, dead on an apparent suicide. Agents claimed that John had hung himself with a bedsheet. Without another word, John McAfee's cases were closed. John's estate was ordered to pay $25 million to Gregory Fowle's estate, and just like that, the curious case was entirely closed. The public, entranced and enthralled by the case of John McAfee, were left to wonder about John's sudden and mysterious end. Had John finally taken the ultimate act of control by ending his roller coaster of a life on his own terms instead of rotting away in an American jail? Or had someone finally caught up to the tech mogul to end his life, just like John had predicted? John's wife and the public still have questions, but nearly seven months after John's death, no one has answers, and it's likely that the tech mogul's demise will remain as much a mystery as his life. I'm Keith Corneluck, and you're listening to Modem Mischief. Thanks for listening to Modem Mischief. Don't forget to hit that follow button in your favorite podcast app right now so you don't miss an episode. This show is an independent production and is wholly supported by you, our listeners. And the best way to support the show is to share it. Tell your friends, your enemies, write it on a $100 bill and use it on your next Coke binge. And another way to support us is on Patreon. For as little as five bucks a month, you'll receive an ad-free version of the show, plus monthly bonus episodes exclusive to subscribers. Modem Mischief is brought to you by Mad Dragon Productions and is created, produced, and hosted by me, Keith Corneluck. This episode is written and researched by Lauren Minkoff, edited, mixed, and mastered by Greg Bernhard, a.k.a. the most progressive man west of the Mississippi. The theme song You Are Digital is composed by Computer Bandit. Sources for this episode are available on our website at modemmischief.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media at Modem Mischief. Thanks for listening.